0: So we are celebrating something called Advent. Let me hear you say Advent. Advent. And Advent means arrival. And uh, in this Christmas season, we are celebrating that when Jesus advented 2,000 years ago, it was the arrival of all that we deeply long for. Now, so what I want for you to know tonight is that it doesn't matter how successful you may appear or how tough you may seem or how much money you may have, there are certain longings that every human heart has. There are four things that every human heart longs for, hope, love, peace, and joy. And at Advent, we celebrate the arrival of those things, those things breaking into humanity. And tonight, we're gonna talk about the arrival of love. And what I want for you to know is that behind all of your intellectual arguments and under your extremely tough exterior, what every human heart longs for is love. You don't outgrow this, you can't outrun this, you can't outthink this. Humanity was built, designed, created, and a desperate for love. And what I desperately want for you to know tonight is that if you refuse to fill that place in your heart with the love of Jesus, then you will turn to broken people and broken places to try to fill it instead. Nothing can fill your heart like the love of Jesus and so tonight we're going to talk about the arrival of love, the uh, the advent of God's gift called love. Let me say love. love. You know, a gift is really exciting. A gift creates anticipation. A gift when it's wrapped looks really pretty if it's wrapped by my wife and not by me. <laughs> Any fellas know what I'm talking about tonight? Any fellas ever gotten into a, like a wrestling match with some wrapping paper? Okay, like you ask me to wrap a gift and this is gonna be a bad day. Like I will literally wrap that gift and by by wrap it, I mean I will take the gift, wrap wrapping paper in a circle around it, put some tape on it and hand it to someone, okay? Like I do not know how to do the fancy things that are required to wrap a gift. I don't know how to fold the corners. I don't know how to do that really fancy thing. Girls, you know what I'm talking about. Where you get scissors and you take a ribbon and you just go, catch it like spirals up. I'm just like, what even is that? Okay. It's like magic. Ta-da. Not me. Okay. Like I prefer a bag. All right. If I give you a gift, it's just coming in a bag. It's simple. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to mess with that wrapping paper stuff. And so my wife, when you get a gift from my wife, it looks like it's getting hand delivered to the queen of England. Okay. It's like beautiful ornate, gorgeous, not for me. And so when you see a gift and it's wrapped up, it's It's lovely, it's intriguing, it's enticing. It creates this anticipation in you for what might be inside. But a gift that remains unwrapped is a gift that remains unexperienced. A gift that remains unwrapped is a gift that quite frankly is pretty useless. And I think that the sad reality is that for most of us, the gift of God's love is a gift that has remained wrapped. It has remained covered up It is something that we've never really actually taken the theological, the biblical, the intentional time to uncover, to dig into, to look inside of, and really dream about what it might actually be. For most of us, the love of God is something that kind of seems pretty from the outside looking in. It's like a little intriguing, it's sentimental, it seems nice, maybe it seems a little enticing, but it's relatively useless. For most of us, our everyday lives, we are not experiencing the love of God. We don't feel like we are using or tapping into the love of God. We don't feel like we are living in and living from the love of God. The love of God doesn't seem to have much of a utilitarian purpose in our lives. It seems this more sentimental thing that is nice to think about or to, to maybe look at. But, but tonight what I want to do is I want to unwrap it. I wanna try to dig a little deeper into the love of God so that you can see that it is not something just to be stared at from afar, but it's something to be experienced up close. It's something that's supposed to invade your life. It's something that's supposed to be tangible and real and substantive and have like feelings and emotions attached to it. Yes, but more than that, it's supposed to have this resilience in it supposed to be something that transforms you and changes you. And so tonight, I wanna look at the advent, the arrival of God's love unwrapped. And I want for you to know tonight that God doesn't love you in just some generic, feel-good, conceptual way where his love is sprayed down from the heavens. Okay, God's love is not rainbows and butterflies. It's not unicorns and pixie dust. God's love is not soft or cheap or cheerily feminine. God's love is real and it is substantive. God's love is not abstract or conceptual. And God's love doesn't let you do whatever you want. And God's love doesn't approve of all your sin. No, God's love is specific and it's dynamic. It's personal and proven. It's evident and intimate. It's wild and relentless. And it is very, very costly. Have you ever unwrapped God's love? Do you have like a really good, deep, robust, take it to the bank, worth giving up every for understanding of God's love? When we think about love arriving, we tend to think about it in a very emotive, romantic, rom-com kind of way. Am I right? Like you think about love arriving, the arrival of love, what comes to mind? Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, right? (laughs) Instantaneously, those are the thoughts that fill our mind. We think about rainbows and butterflies. We think about kissing in the rain and somebody's foot popping. We think about Taylor Swift songs. We think about a fancy restaurant. We think about a guy getting down on one knee. We think about poetry. We think about people levitating. We think about butterflies. Those are our conceptions of the arrival of love, of when love shows up, of when love breaks in. But that's not the way that John envisions the arrival of love. First John says that the love of God arrived in the middle of the night to virginal peasant teenage parents in a barn beneath the shadow of a barbaric Roman empire. God's love didn't arrive in a movie and God's love didn't arrive in a Hallmark card and God's love didn't arrive in a Taylor Swift song. God's love arrived in first century Rome in the middle of the night in a barn to virginal teenage parents. First John 4, 9 says it like this, in this The love of God was made manifest or made seen or visible or known or experienced or arrived. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let me ask you tonight, where would you absolutely not want to send your one and only son? Now, if you had multiple kids, like maybe you'd send them there, you know what I'm saying? because you're like trying to get off the hook, like some of them kind of stress you out. But what if you only had one and you loved that son? Where is the place that you absolutely, positively would not want to send them, that you couldn't imagine your only son being born in Gaza? Afghanistan? Iraq? Portland, Oregon? Where? Where? Where for you would be that place that you would say, I don't want my son to be born And I want for you to think for a second about the worst war zone that you could possibly imagine. Think about the last place you might want to send your son. God said, the way I'm going to manifest Advent my love, show my love is by sending my son." be born in a stable in the middle of nowhere to nobody teenage parents in a time when there is no electricity or indoor plumbing or refrigerators or cars or amazon delivery trucks or heated blankets or hospital delivery rooms i'm going to send him to the middle of nowhere first century bethlehem think about the world that jesus was born into for just a second it's barbaric there's Roman occupation. Wars are fought every day. Every day people die of preventable diseases. Slavery is commonplace. Girls who are unwanted often die from the practice known as exposure where they're just left out in the cold or in a field. The infant mortality rate in the first century was 40%. Today it's 3%. But in Jesus' day, 40% of babies would die before they reached the age of one. Um, my first daughter, Raleigh, um, when Kayla was pregnant with her, we were in the middle of labor. Kayla was in the middle of labor, <laughs> and in the middle of that labor, we had to have an emergency C-section. And um, they had to get the baby out uh, instantaneously. Kayla's heart rate was racing. The baby's heart rate was racing. And if, if we didn't, then it was going to cost, likely cost Kayla and the baby their lives. Our, our following two kids both had to be born C-section. Do you know what that means? That means in the first century, the day and age that the son of God was born into, my wife was born in that time, pregnant in that time, she would have likely died. And so would have my babies. And that is the world. That is the context. That is the era, the time in human history that the God of the universe chooses to send his son to be born in. Not now when it's cush, but back then when it was difficult and painful and barbaric. The uh, gladiator games were on the rise at the time, which made the literal death of humans entertainment and sport. The pretend violence that we consume on Netflix looks tame compared to the literal bloodshed that people in the first century witnessed daily, laughed about, and cheered for. Capital punishment was as barbaric as it had ever been and will ever be. It was public and insulting, It was humiliating and dehumanizing. Any rebel or traitor against the Roman Empire would be stripped naked, beaten publicly, mocked incessantly, and nailed to a cross where they'd experience a long, agonizing, painful death. I want for you to think about this. Crosses lined Roman roads. And crosses served... As this constant reminder that if you rebel against the empire, this is what your fate will inevitably be. They served as this declaration, you come against Rome, this is your inevitable future. And you didn't get some needle in your arm in a sterile room where you got to say bye to your families beforehand. That's not how they died in the first century. No, they they died in public but naked after they had had a trial where they were convicted unfairly all because a crowd and a mob of people shouted really loud. And that's the context that God sends his son to arrive in to demonstrate for you and I what love is supposed to look like. John says this is where God ships the package of his son named love to be opened up by humanity to the Roman Empire, to be killed as a rebel, all for the sake of love. The king of the universe leaves his throne in heaven. He gets wrapped up in flesh and blood to be shipped as a baby into the first century so that love could advent, so that love could arrive. You know what this tells us about God's love? about real love, about true love? This tells us that love gets up. Do you want to know what real love looks like? Real love is not just a tell me love. Real love is a show me love. The way in which Jesus arrived and what Jesus did shows us that love gets up You see, so often we talk about whether or not we can feel the love of God. And it's like we wanna hear him say it or we wanna get zapped from the heavens so that we get the butterflies within us. But I want for you to know that it's way better for God to show you his love than for him to just tell you about his love. Now, make no mistake, he's told you. You can look throughout the pages of scripture and hundreds of times he's told you that he loves you. You just weren't listening. But the truth is, is that he's shown you. And he showed you By love getting up. Jesus got up from his throne and he came to earth. I I, I have to tell myself this often, that love at its very core gets up. That's what love does. Love gets up. So for sake of an illustration, I think about this all the time. At night, in the evening, when my wife Kayla and I were laying on on a couch in the living room. Now, I don't know how you keep your house, but I like to keep my house like Antarctica, okay? Okay. So I'm like, pay for air conditioning, I don't care, run up the bill, like 65 degrees in my house, hallelujah, okay, like I'm all about it, like at night I want a fan blowing on me, it's like a wind tunnel in my bedroom, it's amazing, all right? And so oftentimes in the evening when Kayla and I are laying on a couch, on the other, she's laying on one couch, I'm laying on the other couch and we're sitting there and I just sat down after a long day and our house is freezing and Kayla's on the other side and she goes, I'm cold. And sometimes what I want to do is I want to holler over, I love you. Love you over there in your cold. But then I have to remind myself that that's not what love does. You know what love does? Love gets up. And so I get up and I go and grab a blanket and I turn down the thermostat and I light on the fireplace and I make her a cup of coffee or hot chocolate or whatever it may hot tea, whatever it may be to say, this is what does love gets up. And God is in heaven, he's looking down on this barbaric, broken, sinful, fractured humanity who's on a highway to hell, who's eternally separated from a loving God and he doesn't just shout it down from the heavens, he doesn't just zap us with a feeling that makes us feel good for two seconds. Love gets up off of his throne and he enters into our world to show us what love is actually like. And nobody got this better than John. Nobody understood this better than the apostle John. Let me tell you about John for just a second. Because John might not be who you think that John is. So John, 13 times in this one section of scripture, 14 if you count the word beloved, uses this word love. If you were to zoom out and you were to look at this letter 30 times in a very tightly packed letter, love, Love, love John's language is love, John's assessment about God and things of God is love where does it, Where does this come from how does How does this become John's view? because this isn't who John originally was. If you know, John was one of the youngest disciples of Jesus, and John grew up working for his dad as a fisherman and I don't know if you know this or not, but like fishermen work is not like easy work. John was like a rough neck, rough around the edges, kind of like you know, man's man kind of a guy. Like fishermen, they are a far cry from the modern day pastor who's like over sentimentalized and is like listening to, you know, love songs trying to convince you of the love of God. That's not who John is. John's not like the make you feel good about yourself modern pastor of today. He is a fisherman. A rough neck, rough around the edges, cracked hands, burnt skin, um, bad-smelling, foul-mouthed fisherman. John likely cussed like a sailor. That's John. And yet, something happens to John where he begins to write about love. John actually had a nickname. John and his brother James had these two nicknames. They were called the Sons of Thunder. Now, that's a manly nickname. The sons of thunder. That's so dope. There's this one time where they're uh, in Jesus' ministry, they're making their way through a city. And there's this one city that's not very receptive to the gospel. And so John goes up to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, do you think, do you want me to call down fire to consume this city? Do you think that we should blaze them with the judgment of the fury of heaven? Because I'll do it right now. Like, that's John. John is not a poetry loving, Hillsong listening, Jesus calling, reading, happy-go-lucky Christian. He's a roughneck, rugged, call-down-fire-from-heaven, son of thunder, fishing kind of guy. And yet, something happens to John. What happens? John is transformed. What happens? I would contend that what happens is John meets love, dressed up as the person of Jesus. And he learns that love is what he's been longing for, that love is what he's created for, that love love changes him from the inside out. John ends up becoming the person who writes the most famous words in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that was written earlier on. This that we're reading tonight, 1 John, this is some 25 years later. 25 years later, this is Grandpa John. At the end of his life, he's writing the words that we're reading tonight. So so think about this. At this point in John's life, when he's writing these words that we're reading tonight, all of his teenage friends that he followed Jesus around with, they've died. They've literally been executed, barbarically murdered for following Jesus. Died. At this point in John's life, John has been boiled alive for his faith. He's been forced to drink poison. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. He has been over and over and over again, they forced him to try to recant, to try to deny, and he won't. He has got this love within him, this love from God that causes him to hold on. And he says that at the end of my life as Grandpa John, not at the beginning when, you know, I'm just ambitious and I haven't really lived life yet, but at the end, when he's 98 years old, and they're having to carry him around because he's frail and broken, he, he's taken to these churches. And he's brought in, as, they, as his friends carry him, he begins to preach this message about love. He goes, after it all, after all that I've seen after all I've experienced, after all I've lost, after all the pain that life has brought me, when I think about God and all of my estimations and calculations, the one thing that I want for you to know is that he is love. This love that John encounters changes John from the inside out. It changes John forever It makes him new, it turns him into a person of love, and that transformation, hear me say this, that transformation can happen for you right now, here, today. I've often said, if you go to base camp, you will hear me say this, that one of the greatest apologetics, one of the greatest reasons that I believe that God is real in my life, is because the undeniable transformation that the love of Jesus had on my dad. It was tangibly evident. My dad, he's sitting on the front row tonight, so this is so interesting to talk about with him right here, but my dad, early on in life, was very consumed with success. His passion was to build the tallest skyscraper in downtown Atlanta, and he owned companies, and I had these early visions of my dad of being very intense and very short-tempered and very angry. And I have these these vivid memories of him losing his temper and taking his wallet and throwing it against the wall and just credit cards flying everywhere. But then my dad encountered the love of God in a way that was so transformative that it made him soft and tender and present and intentional I have these memories of my dad showing up, like, surprising me in moments that I didn't think that he was going to be there because all of his priorities shifted in light of the love of God to the point that he, like, kissed me on my mouth till I was 17 years old. (laughs) So that's pretty weird. Can I I get an amen? (laughs) But that's what love does. Love changes you. I believe that tonight, if you would encounter the real, the legit, the substantive love of God, that it would change you too. That you would get to the point that you'd be able to say that at the end of my life, come what may, despite the difficulty, despite the tragedy, despite the loss, I can say, hallelujah, God is love. 1 John 4, 7 says it like this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John says that God is love, that he is love, that love is not just one of the many attributes that God has, but love is at the core of who God is. Love is God's essence. It's his character. It's his DNA. If you cut God, he bleeds love. But let's unwrap that. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that. What is love? What is it really, definitively? What is love? If it's not just rainbows and butterflies, if it's not just emotions, if it's not just a warm feeling, what really is love? love. First John 4, 9, in this, the love of God. So there may be other kinds of love, but in this, in this, the love of God, this lasting love, eternal love, the love that you want and long for and desire and were created for. In this, the love of God was manifested, made known, communicated, defined, arrived among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we have this tendency within us to drift towards incorrect ideas and concepts of God's love. We have this tendency to drift towards um, very watered down and over sentimentalized versions of love. And a lot of it is a language issue. It's a language issue. It's because in English, we have one word for love. Now, if you were to study the languages of the Bible, you would know that in the Hebrew, that there's up to 14 different words that we all translate love. So as you're reading the Old Testament, you see love. There are 14 potential Hebrew words that could be inserted instead of love there. That should blow your mind. That should go, that that was a problem in translation because what it does is it makes us believe that love is everything. And if love is everything, then love is nothing. Nothing. So Hebrews had a much better way of defining and communicating exactly what love was and what something else was. And you see, we've just kind of put all these things together. We've jumbled them. The the Greeks would have four or five different words for love, four of which get used in the Bible. So, So here we are with 14 or 15 different words that we all translate love, causing us to have this jumbled, kind of discombobulated, confused picture of what love actually is. And so then what happens is, this is very important, like just recognize this. What happens in modern day times is we tend to pick whatever our favorite component of love is, elevate it to be the center of what love is and deduce or reduce everything else. And so for most of us, it goes like this. Love is kindness. In most people's mind, in most people's, functional definition. When they think about love, they think about kindness or niceness. And so when somebody does anything that is not kind so far as you define kind or not nice so far as you define nice, you determine that it's not loving. And the problem with that is that biblically speaking, kindness is a component of love, but it is not the totality of love. A close reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 would show you, but love is, and it would show you that love is patient and kind, that love does not envy or boast, that love is not proud or self-seeking, that love is not rude, that love is not easily angered, that love keeps no record of wrongs, that love always perseveres, it always protects. Love never fails. It would show you that there are all of these dynamics to love. So like, yes, kindness is a component of love, but if you elevate it and act like that's all that love is, you've missed the point because love also does not delight in the evil, but it rejoices in the truth. And so love must speak the truth. Love keeps no record of wrongs, absolutely, but love also protects, protects against wrong, fights against wrong. And so I wanna give you a functional definition of love. And I want for it to fundamentally change when you see love in the Bible to, not, to no longer see, oh, kindness or niceness, but for you to see something much more dynamic and robust. The word is agape. And if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard this before, agape. And the problem is, is I think that it's been probably a little misdefined for you. Most people, if they were to ask to, be give, to, to give a definition of agape, they would just say God's unconditional love. Sort of, sort of. Agape is much more than just God's unconditional love. Let me throw up on the screen for you what agape actually is. Agape is an unending commitment to another's highest good, no matter the cost. Something revolutionary would happen in your mind tonight. If you would start to see the love of God as an unending commitment to another's highest good, no matter the cost. Like so when you're reading his love endures forever, He has an unending commitment to another's highest good, no matter the cost, forever. When you see that God is love, you see God has an unending commitment to another's highest good, no matter the cost. That's what I see when I think about God being love. I think about God having an unending commitment to another's highest good, no matter the cost. So yes, at some level, is God's love unconditional? Yes, but it's better than that, it's so much better than that. Because it's not just saying that there's nothing you can do to make God uh, stop loving you, it's saying that God won't stop, that there's nothing God is unwilling to do in order to love you. How much better is that? One is, okay, God will love me no matter what I do. The other is God's going, no, I will do whatever it takes to love you. But loving you looks like achieving your highest good, no matter the cost tonight you need to know that God has an unending commitment to your highest good no matter the cost. No matter the cost, he will do whatever it takes to achieve the highest good for his people, not because of anything we've done, not because we've loved him or performed for him or worshiped him or sought him, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. You see, God's love for you traces its way all the way back to before the foundations of the world. God loved you before you walked or talked or sinned or sang or gave or cheated or lied or served or did anything good or bad or right or wrong he has been and will be unendingly committed to your highest good, no matter the cost. Here's where we slow down and really kind of like just dive into the deep and unwrap God's love. We're we're peeling back an onion tonight. If this is love, if love is the unending commitment to the highest good of another, no matter the cost, this means that God is willing to allow and use pain and sorrow in our lives to drive us towards our highest possible good. I'm gonna say that again because you can get set free and you can have stable, robust, beautiful Christianity if you will. Hold on to this tonight. God is willing to allow and use pain and sorrow in our lives to drive us towards our highest possible good. Fully aware that we are fallen and rebellious, sinful people who live in a broken and fractured world, God will use whatever is required to see the highest possible good materialized and realized in the lives of his people. Here's a moment where I never want you to forget Please grab a hold of this tonight. Your highest possible good. This right here, this is for me. It is the height of theology and it is the foundation of theology. If you can get this, believe this, hold on to this, read the Bible with this in mind, that your highest possible good, the highest possible good that God can give you is God himself. There is nothing better that God can give you than God. Absolutely nothing better. If you could let that truth land in your soul tonight, it would set you free from so much pain and so much confusion if you would start to believe that tonight and preach that to yourself tonight, that God is after your highest possible good. He is relentlessly committed to it no matter the cost, but that your highest possible good is you getting God himself the best thing that god can give you it's not a wife or a kid or a dream or a dream job or a dream home it's Himself, The best thing that God can give you is his presence. The best thing that God can give you is a deep and an abiding connection with him. The best thing that God can give you is your dependence upon him. The best thing that God can give you is your joy in him. The best thing that God can give you is your union with him, your friendship with him. The highest possible good God can bring about in your life and in mind is where God becomes and is enjoyed as absolutely everything to us. Are you getting this? Because the reason that most of us don't feel or sense God loving us is because we conclude that the best thing that God could do, that the highest possible good that God could bring about in our lives is just being turned into a genie in a bottle where he gives us whatever the heck we want. But God has a greater love than that where he knows that many of the things that we want will not produce the highest possible good in us. They will crush us because those things if given to us or if kept in our lives will not lead us closer to him or cause us to worship him or adore him or sit with him or really get to know him or delight in him or see that he is the giver of every good things but they will distract us and they will lead us away from him and it will cause us to settle for much lesser things. If you think that God will use everything that happens in life to bring about your good, and that good is defined as your vision for good, I want for you to know he won't. He won't. He won't use it for that. He won't use tragedy and pain to give you your vision of happiness or the fairy tale dream that you have in mind. He's not gonna do that. And thank God that he doesn't because my vision for my life, my vision of the good life is often a far cry from God himself. The view of God and love will profoundly shape every experience you have in life, good and bad, loss and gain, victory and defeat, if you will see that God is going to use this to bring about my highest good, which is connectedness and union and dependence upon and satisfaction within him. God knows what's best for you. So it's the love of God, not the wrath of God, that allows a job to be taken away that takes you away from his presence. God knows he is what's best for you, so he will allow health to be taken away if it leads to you finding all your strength and portion in him. God will allow a dream, a success to be taken away in pursuit of leading you to finding all your fountains and all of your fulfillment in him. The Puritans would say it like this, In love, he may slay me to remind and show me that only he is my infinite and ultimate delight. Just let that sit on you for a second. Let it color everything that's happened in your life that could at all possibly drive you towards him. Though he slay me, in love, he may slay me to remind and show me that only he is my infinite and ultimate delight. Let me be very honest for a second. It has been my experience that usually our sufferings and pain drive us towards him and it's usually our successes and achievements that keep us from him. When it goes well, we tend to forget to acknowledge him, don't we? When it goes well, we become extremely self-reliant and self-focused, become proud and puffed up and like, we're good, we've got this. But when pain comes knocking on our door and it brings us to our knees, it has this way of causing us to lean into him and to lean upon him, which is what we've actually needed all along. It's where he's always wanted us. It's where the highest good is found because he is the highest good to be had. I don't know how many ways to say this or articulate this or communicate this to you tonight. That The best thing that God can give you isn't a dream life that is free of pain and that is insulated by comfort, but it is the life where you are as close to him and as connected to him and as satisfied in him and as close of friends with him and believe as deeply in him and spend as much time as you possibly can with him and think the highest thoughts about him. Whatever has to happen to remove the treasures, the other gods, the other idols, that's him loving you. Because what you ultimately want is him. And he knows that at the end of every road and at the end of every success and at the end of every dream, that those things will grow numb and that those things will run dry and that those things will leave you empty. But that he will make your heart come alive. That he will give you win in your sales that he will give you a purpose that never ends that he will he will be there and he will never not be there and he will do what no one else can do and he will love how no one else can love and he will fulfill where no one else can fulfill and where everything else gets boring and where everything else you grow numb to there is something in him that is eternal oh if you could have this happen tonight that god's great love for you is going i want to get you as close to me as possible and if it means taking away some of the things that you have set above me and prioritized higher than me. I will do it to bring you close to my heart. What a scandalous, fierce love. All of a sudden, the things that are going on in my life, so long as I've got this vision for, he's trying to get my attention. He's trying to wake me up. and And I know your thoughts, well, why couldn't he do it through good things? He tried. He did. He gave us Eden in a garden of perfection. He gave you health and a really great job. He get X, Y, and Z, and then you didn't seek him or acknowledge him or lean into him or make your life totally and wholly about him. And so there's this other way that he woos you. He ravishes you. He pursues you. And I could talk about this all night, but this is what I know is that most of the people who i've met who have who seem to have the most profound experience of god's love met that love in the dark night of the soul they discovered this otherworldly love when their world came crashing to the ground and they now look back on the breakings in their life as the greatest blessings and acts of love because it drove them to commune with God and enjoy his presence in a way they had never done before. And they discovered this is my highest good. Whatever I had before this, I consider as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing this. People who come to comprehend the love of God as defined by a deep and abiding relationship with God himself, they rejoice in the formerly precious things being taken away in order for God to get them to a place where He is their, where the highest possible good in their life is a relationship with him. I want for you to know that most people will live in a shallow kiddie pool version of Christianity thinking the depth of God's love is found in God doing stuff for us, but the depth of God's love is found when he becomes everything to us. Where our highest request, do you wanna know? If you, if you actually know God's love for you being that he is trying to get your highest possible good and that his highest, your highest possible good is the deepest connectedness to him that you could have, you know that you've got a vision for that when your prayers, your highest request is not God fix my situation or give me this thing that I want. But your highest prayer is God give me more of you. Let me be with you, let me hear your voice, let me feel the touch of your hand, let me sit with you a little longer, let me learn what it means to be your friend. These are the people who actually know what it means for God to love them. And if this wasn't already like maybe the most intense sermon ever, we're gonna talk about propitiation now, so. Let me just say propitiation. How many of y'all used that in a sentence this week? Show hands. Why do I do this, guys? Why do I make topics like love still feel so intense, okay? It's one for you know, I often pray about, God, let me be the nice preacher. He's like, nah, can't, can't do it, bro, can't do it. So God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, propitiation literally means to appease God's wrath. So in antiquity, specifically in Greek culture where religion was very polytheistic, there were thousands of gods. And these gods were erratic and they were inconsistent and they were always mad, okay? And nobody quite knew why, why this god was mad at you and why they would be upset at you and what they were trying to do to you. And so there would be all of these temples and these altars that were set up all over the ancient world. And what people would do is they would slay animals and they would offer sacrifices as a propitiation, as a way to appease the anger or the wrath of God so that Zeus or Aphrodite or whoever wouldn't be mad at you. You would kill something to propitiate, to make sure they weren't mad at you so that you were cool with that God. And God says that Jesus removes his wrath. It removes his anger. It propitiates us. Let me tell you something tonight. God is angry. God is angry. And I know, I, I know you're, you're probably not going to go to a lot of churches in metro Atlanta, Georgia, that are going to preach that message. God is angry. He's actually angry. Most of them God's not an angry God. He's not up there in the heavens. just angry. The problem with that is the Bible. Turn to Psalm 7. This is not going to come up on the screens because I didn't know if I was going to do this, but I'm going to do this. Psalms chapter seven, verse six. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, oh righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. A God who feels indignation. That is right, just anger every single day. So I know that we're in the Psalms and I know that this is like Old Covenant, Old Testament. The problem is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, if the Bible said in the Old Testament that God feels indignation every day, then I want you to know, guess what? In the New Testament, God still feels indignation every single day. God is angry every single day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Now that's a different kind of Bible verse. Most people are not thinking about the fact that God has indignation, he is angry every single day, that he wets his sword, that he draws his bow, and that at the end they're singing songs that he does it. What is going on here? This my friends, is propitiation. You see, God is love, absolutely. But that phrase, appears a mere four times in the Bible. There's this other phrase that God is holy, which appears upwards of 600 times in the Bible. Even more core, hear me say this with no mistake, to the heart of God than his love is his holiness. It is his holiness that drives and dictates, it defines and it informs his love. And thank God that it does. Because without his holiness, God loves like you and me. You see, to be holy means God is like no other. And if God is like the rest and he loves like you love, well, I don't know about you, but the way that I love is I love till I, till I don't anymore. And I love until I'm too offended not to love or till I'm too uh, offended to be able to continue to love. And I love really inconsistently. And I love really selfishly. And my ethics are kind of misconstrued. I'm not as consistent as I'd like to be. I don't always offer fair treatment. I'm usually thinking about what's in it for me. The Bible says that God doesn't love like that. God is first and foremost holy. He is morally upright and consistent. He is righteous and pure in all of his ways. He hates evil and hates what is wrong. And he loves what is right. He hates the things that are filthy and that are wicked and that are evil and that are deadly. He loves the things that are life and that are lovely and that are good and that are pure and that are true. God has a holy love. God knows that sin is not just like a mistake. God knows that sin is wicked and it is evil and it is wrong. And sin in many ways, hear me say this tonight, sin is the antithesis of love. Love wills the highest good for another. Sin wills the absolute worst for another. You see, love gives you God himself. Sin leads you away from God himself. Hold these ideas in your mind tonight. Sin robs you of your highest possible good because sin separates you from God. God in his righteous holy love wants to bring you towards him. Sin wants to rip you out of his hands. Sin wants to deceive you and make you think that there's something better for you than God. And so God in his righteous, holy, just anger realizes that sin is the great enemy against you and I. That sin is a cancer that seeks to steal God's children away and kill them and crush them. Sinners spread that cancer and its effects to God's good creation. Now think about this. What wouldn't I do for my kids? The answer is to nothing, okay? Thought about it a lot this week. What wouldn't I do for my kids? The the answer is nothing. Like, you can hurt me, you can offend me, you can talk trash about me, you can leave tonight, post some mean comments on social media about my sermon. I don't care. I just, I don't care. I'll brush it off, push me down, get back up again, okay? I was born in the 90s. I get knocked down, but I get up again, okay? But let you touch my kids. I've already predetermined, I'm gonna be real good at prison ministry, Like, I will hurt you, I will end you, I will come for you if if you touch my kids. There is just this violent love, this righteous indignation that I feel if somebody abuses, mistreats, leads astray, harms one of my kids. And everybody gets that. Everybody laughs about that, like, yeah, I totally get it. Nobody's like, well, maybe you should give them a second chance. Like if they hurt Raleigh, abused Raleigh, stole from Raleigh, deceived Raleigh, lied to Raleigh, distorted Raleigh's view of the world, took Raleigh's dignity, stole Raleigh's innocence. Nobody'd be like, Joey, calm down. Like play it cool. Like they didn't know what they were doing. They were just making a mistake. No, you would actually think the opposite. If I was calm, cool, and collected, you'd be like, there's something wrong with him. He must not care about his daughter for him to be such a passive father. And likewise, God looks down on what sin does to his kids. And he says, I am righteously, holy, furiously angry. And I absolutely am going to do something about it. And for me to not do anything about it, for me to just Sweep it under the rug and act like it's no big deal. does not make me a good, good God or a nice God or a loving God or a proper God. It would make me a horrible God, an inconsistent God, a weak God, a little God, a God who is not just and cannot be trusted, a God who is not safe and who does not know how to will people's best, but a God who refuses to let sin go unpunished and attacks what harms his kids is a God who is holy, God who is altogether higher and bigger, more marvelous than we could dare to dream. And this is precisely what is happening in the cross of Christ. Innocent Jesus, holy Jesus, sinless Jesus acts as a sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of God, to pay for and remove any anger and wrath that God has towards sin and sinners for the sake of his kids and the glory of his name. Every act of sin is treason against God and upon his kid. And sin and sinners alike lead God's children away from what is best for them. God's presence, God's himself, sin separates. And so God in Jesus becomes both just and justifier by killing his one and only son to offer life to all who would believe. So let me just give you two illustrations to try to unpack this very quickly. Here's number one. This is propitiation. Imagine I stole money from you. It's a very bad illustration for a pastor with a church congregation, okay? (laughs) But imagine I stole money from you. And then imagine I paid it back. The debt is paid in full. Am I off the hook? Are you angry with me? Is there some wrath that you have towards me? Do you trust me? Are we like cool? Are we in a good relationship? Will you trust me with your wallet? No, no way. So it is possible for something to be paid for, but for the punishment to not be rendered, yes? So we know that on the cross, that Jesus pays for our sins, canceling out our guilt. But what he also does on the cross is that he not just pays the debt in full, he removes the punishment as well. So that not only is it paid for, but there's no anger, there's no residual effects, there's no God not trusting you, because that's what most of us think. We're like, yeah, I know that God's like forgiven me, but now he just kinda tolerates me. He just puts up with me. He's still actually pretty disappointed in me. So I know I'm gonna get to heaven in the end, but not because God wants me there, just because he tolerates me. Nothing could be further from the truth. God says, I bankrupted heaven, I sent my son to die, and somehow, in a way that is totally miraculous, God let go of his son. And then when he got him back, he also got all of these other kids too. And so now any anger that was there before is now gone because he's so gloriously excited by what he now has. He has Jesus. He has an entire family. That's propitiation. Propitiation number two, it would go like this. Imagine a husband and a wife, they get in an argument. They're in a fight. They're bitter, they're angry. Husband storms out the door. They don't reconcile it. At work, on his way home from work, He decides to stop by the store and buy a dozen roses. He comes home, knows that his wife's angry, he's done something wrong, he's offended her, he walks in the door and she has anger in her heart, but then she sees those roses in his hands. And in a sense, this gift, this offering, it appeases the anger that she has and what was anger before now turns to love. It propitiates the anger. That's what Jesus is doing. Let me take that illustration a step further because this is actually what Jesus does. A husband and a wife, they have an argument. They have a fight. The husband's in the wrong. He goes to work that day. The wife goes to the store and she buys herself a dozen roses at great cost to herself. And she sets them outside of the door so that when her husband gets home, what is needed to take away her anger has already been purchased by herself. All he needs to do pick up the roses, walk in the door, and give back what's already been given to him. This is what God does for us in Jesus. If that doesn't send chills through your very being, if that doesn't let you know that God's like going, I will do whatever it takes to be good and right and holy and true and to punish what is evil and to remove it from my kids and to protect my character, but to get them back into my family then I don't know what will. God propitiates our sin. He adopts us into his family. I love what the church Father Augustine says about this. He says, in loving me, you made me lovable. In loving me, you made me lovable. You know one of the hardest things to do in all of the earth is to read through this book and realize how vile and horrible And awful and treacherous and treasonous sin actually is. And to realize that you're so guilty of sin against a holy, righteous, loving God. And to look yourself in the mirror and know all of that is true and to know what you actually deserve. Not a slap on the wrist, but total sentence of hell forever. To know you actually deserve that, to look in the mirror, to know that God loves you anyways. He loves you not because of what you've done could do, he loves you because of what he has done in and through the arrival of his son named Jesus. I know what you may be thinking. Well, Joey, I don't feel that love. I don't feel very lovable tonight. I just want to very quickly give you three things in closing because I want you to. I want you to feel the love of God. Number one, if you don't feel the love of God tonight, right now, where you are, I would tell you that you're going to have to look back in order to move forward. Every time that you doubt the love of God, you're like, ah, I don't see it in my life. Look back to Calvary. I have to preach the gospel to myself all the time. When I don't like my situation, I go, no, let me remember he was born in Bethlehem for me. Let me remember he was born to peasant parents for me. Let me remember he was born in the shadow of the barbaric empire for me. Let me remember that he was betrayed for me, that he carried the cross for me, that nails went through his hands for me, that love got up uh, that he died for me. He's proved it. And I just I just start to reflect on that. He did it for me. He did it for me. He did it for me. It was all for me. And it was all for love. When you don't feel it, know it. Believe it. Reflect upon it. Meditate on it. It would be like, Kayla, I don't I don't really feel like you love me. Well, why? I I made you breakfast, and I cared for our kids, and I kissed you, and I hugged you, and I thanked you, and I've done all of these things. I just don't feel it. It's unfair. Look at all that he has done for you in the cross. Realize he loves you. Thing number two is what John says, 1 John 4, 11 through 12. Beloved, if God so love us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, pretty mind-blowing reality that God's love is perfected in us as we love one another but I want for you to think about this when you love other people and you let other people love you you will experience the love of God unlike anything else when you develop an unending commitment to the highest good of other people and you let them have an unending commitment to your highest good you will start to experience the love of God If we love one another, God abides, remains, rests in, makes his home in us, and his love is perfected in us, made mature in us, grows in us, does its work in us as we love one another. So let me me say it like this. When, When the community that I am in loves me well, and they love me not just as Jesus loved me, but as if they were Jesus loving me, wrap that idea in your mind. Start trying to love people and go, "Mm, God wants to use me to actually be a tangible expression and representative of his love towards them. So I'm trying with everything in me, all the capacity of the love of God that is within me to love people so that they feel as if it's not Joey loving them right now, it's Jesus loving them right now. And when people love one another like that, you start to emotively, tangibly feel the love of God. The, The challenge is most of you won't take the time to experience this kind of community. You won't create the space that is, absolutely required to actually get to this point of relationship. So I've got people in my life who like deeply love me like this. My wife deeply loves me like this. At times where I see her literally sacrificing, dying to herself and her pride and her ambition and her soul for me. Man, I've got people, I I could just go through our team. I could tell you about the ways that Joe Baker loves me like this. When I know, he's just words of encouragement when I can't see it. Speaking words over me, and it's just the opposite of all the lies that I'm telling myself. I tell you, Bailey, when she sends voice texts and calls out specific encouragement or honors me in public, Caden, when he's relentlessly loyal, Thomas, when he tears down any wall. Like, I've got these communities around me that I can go, Oh my gosh, look, like this, this is the love of God. I look at the contrast of the relationships that most people experience and then the relationships that I get to experience, and I'm like, This is what it means to be in the love of God, to have the love of God abide in us and for it to be manifested to each other. Whatever you have to do to organize your life around sacrificially serving and loving other people. If you want to emotively feel the love of God, force yourself to do that. And then here's what I close with tonight. Romans chapter five, verse five. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So finally, recklessly pursue the presence of God. If you want to not just know about, leave that verse up there, don't take that verse down. If you want to not just know about, but experience emotively, because I want you to so bad, and I want for you to know I do. I do, I do, like it's real. If no one's ever told you that it's real, I want for you to know that it's real. Like I feel so loved by God. I don't just know that I'm loved by God. Like I feel like butterflies in my stomach, like a restlessness, like I can't catch my breath. Like my heart is racing, hands are sweating, lightning bolts from heaven, kind of love from God at times. I feel like, I can't believe you would be this good to me and this near to me. I feel like you are presently holding me, rejoicing over me with singing. But I can tell you that that only comes through the Holy Spirit. Those kinds of emotions, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's not just a knowing about something, that's an experiencing something. When something is poured out, It's not like an intellectual exchange, that is an experiential exchange. And God, through the Holy Spirit, wants to literally take love, all of love, and he wants to pour it, water it, dump it into the deep, driest, cracked parts of your heart, the parts of your heart that feel unlovable, and unwanted, and dirty, and broken, and forgotten, and like you don't deserve it. He wants to take the deepest love, the love of heaven, and he wants to just jump it into your hearts so that it erases your shame and your past and your condemnation and all of those stories that play on repeat. He wants to overwhelm that with his love and experience of his love, but he does it through the Holy Spirit. If he's gonna pour it out and you wanna catch it, you've gotta open yourself up. Most of us practice religion like this most of us go to church like this, coffee in hand. If you really wanna feel the love of God, it's a spiritual experience and you're gonna have to open yourself up to spiritual things. You're gonna have to get like this. You're gonna have to sit in silence like this. You're gonna have to stand and surrender like this. You're gonna have to wake up early in the morning when it's dark outside and it's cold. You're wondering, what in the heck am I doing? You're gonna have to wait, say, God, I'm open. Come Holy Spirit, you might have to fast and you might need somebody to lay hands on you and pray for you if you want that love of God that's poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to open up to spiritual things.